Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 48, I Hate Fairyland, where we will be looking at Chapters 100 and 101 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of fairy magic. Okay, so real talk. If you haven't read I Hate Fairyland by Scotty Young, it is an exceptionally funny and delightful graphic novel series, and I just, I can't recommend it enough. I believe we've already actually recommended it. (laughs) I'm sure we have, but we've also been doing this for nearly, nope, more than three years. (laughs) True. Any hoozle, before we begin, let us talk about what you're about to experience. Each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will then... Talk about a Fornemos, except probably not today, because all we've got today is Florian and Quoth, and Quoth's never it. Anyway, we will then share a recommended thing of the week and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Dot Books. Secondly, there will be spoilers. You have been warned. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right. So before we go too far, I want to explain why we chose fairy magic as our lens. And it's most succinctly put that this is probably the most outwardly magical section of the Florian section that isn't to do with the Cathay. It's also one, I think, that deals most specifically with the unique geography and magical landscape of the Fey realm. So this is the one that makes me think the Fey is a place of wonder and potential danger, but also weirdness. There's definitely some high strangeness at play. So we start with chapter 100, Shade, which is spelled S-H-A-E-B which I had no idea about until we actually read the physical copy because I have listened to this a bunch, but I have not physically read it till now. Yeah, seeing it in print is a little bit different. So one of the things that we begin with here is a brief discussion of Quoth's impression of being in the Fey realm. Like, he doesn't really have a good sense for time. He's slept a few times and the light quality is not changing like there's no sun going around the world changing the sky from blue to purples to black to a beautiful rainbow of sunrise there's none of that it's just twilight purple the other thing that we get is a description of the fey realm as an almost animistic place where He describes how there's a difference between being in an empty room and a room with someone sleeping in it. Even if that person isn't conscious, there is the impression of a consciousness there. And everything in the Fey realm has that sense. Like every 
tree, rock, stream, blade of grass, all of that feels like it has a mind. And if it isn't directly speaking with you, it's just because it's not awake yet. Another thing he points out is that he has no idea how long has passed in the real world. Quote, real world. He doesn't know if he'll come back as an aged old man, if he will come back the same age that he was when he left, but the world will have aged hundreds or more years. There are stories about people returning from the Fey world in all sorts of different states. What we know more than anything else is just time works differently, but we don't really know how differently. And we don't know if it's true for all parts of the Fey realm or if they all work the same way. So back to your point about the world itself feeling alive, but kind of just asleep. I've never actually, as an adult, lived completely on my own. I've either had a roommate or a partner that I lived with. And you can definitely tell that there is a presence in the home versus when the other person isn't there. Like even if you're in a room that you've closed the door to, I can generally feel your presence in the home. Sometimes I can hear you. I know that you're moving around in there and I can hear you bumping against walls or something. I am clumsy. Well, it's mostly your feet because you have your office in the closet and sometimes you'll kick a little bit or like your chair will squeak or something like that. Or sometimes it's not even a noise thing. It's just that I can kind of feel that you're home. Or you can always just follow the fact that Sokka is sitting outside my door waiting to be let in. That implies that he's ever let in. Oh, no, it doesn't. It just means that he's waiting to be. Yeah, he's got to be waiting for a long time. Doesn't mean he won't try. No, that poor little thing just makes a beeline directly under the bed in that room. I know. <sighs> Silly cat. Any hoozle. Have you had that experience, though, where coming home and you know that the person or people that you live with, at least someone is home and it feels like they're home? Yeah. I mean, there's usually artifacts that give you clues to that sort of thing like you know i've always had roommates as well even if i wasn't living with a partner and i mean it's not like we've ever lived in large enough places where someone could just completely disappear when i lived with my roommates back in bellevue you know we had a three-bedroom apartment and you know even if i didn't necessarily see their cars i could tell if they were home usually because you know there'd be music going or something like that but there is a definite difference when no one else is home oh yeah so we also get a little bit more interaction with valurian and she seems agitated by the idea of Kvothe leaving willingly from her realm and not being able to come back so she wants to give him a gift and she says would my sweet flame like a coat a cloak and Kvothe, who has not touched his clothes the entire time he's been here, because why would you? You don't need to. Okay. Was like, but I already have one. And then he realizes that the tatty old tinker's cloak that he has previously worn is not there. And that the sword that he was carrying is also not there. 
Given the Fae problems with iron, you wonder how that got moved. Or did he just not bring it? Or was he not allowed to bring those two items in? Like, did everything else move in because it was okay? Who knows? There's a lot that's unexplained here. Well, anyway, he has to kind of think about it. And he doesn't give her an answer. But then there's this little thing that is kind of endearing me to Florian, at least. Where part of her anxiety is fueled by the numerous scars all over our not-quite-17-year-old protagonist. Like, he's got the scars from being whipped. He's got the scars from, like, his knee. I think that happened in Name of the Wind. He's got other evidence of bodily injuries that seem a bit excessive. He's had a hard life. And Foth says, it's okay. I can take care of myself. And Valorian is like, all evidence to the contrary, my dude. Yeah, She's like, you know, you can have some protection from that. Though, given what every other fairy story we have tells us about fairies and gifts. They aren't no-strings-attached gifts. But one of the things that I noted in this part here is it kind of felt like the bestowing of a heroic boon on the hero journey. Well, so Valorian is intent on giving him something to protect him. And she gives him something to protect him that will work uniquely with his particular style of adventurism. As she says, you are not a fighter, yet you are all iron bitten. You are a sweet bird that cannot fly. No bow, no knife, no chain. So she is wanting to give him a gift that is unique to him and what he needs as opposed to just giving him a generic magic sword or a magic shield or a magic suit of armor. She says, I am going to custom make something just for you based on who you are that will basically let you do the things that you are best at and protect you while you do them. And that's where I get sort of that hero's boon sort of thing because it does feel fairly unique. Like we think of the other boons that Kvothe has received over the course of this series, we've got Fella's Cloak. We have also the Loot Case from Denna, right? These are both things that have been picked out explicitly for Kvothe by someone who cares about him. Someone who wants him to be safe, who wants to help him to treasure the things that he holds most dear. And each one of these has proven to be a wondrous boon in its own right. Florian says, you must be safe from iron, from cold, from spite. You must be quiet. You must be light. You must move softly in the night. You must be quick and unafraid. This means I must make you a shade. And of course, Quoth immediately is like, well, I've already got a shadow right here. Like, look right over there. <laughs> There's a little bit of a mistranslating little banter back and forth. And then Florian says, come with me. And Kvothe almost resists, but finds he is unable to. So she takes him from her little pavilion, which is all summer sunset twilight time. And as they walk, it gets progressively darker. 
This is our first hint that the Fey Realm is not all beautiful things. There's some real horror in here. It gets so dark that Quoth tries to create a sympathetic binding to create light. He does an interesting thing of essentially making his movement translate into energy, which translates into light. And immediately Florian is, hey, stop that, because that light awakens something. It's not even just stop that. She tackles him to the ground after yelling at him to put it away. It's sort of like that bit in Lord of the Rings where <laughs> Frodo's like, Put it out, you fools! Put it out! Exactly. That's what I had in my head, too. <laughs> and, like, I swear in the course of less than two pages, we are reminded multiple times that she is naked and that he is naked, but this is not sexy time tackle you to the ground. This is, you are an idiot, put that out now, tackle you to the ground. And then she presses herself against Kvoth. His head struck a knuckle of root on the ground and something vast and almost perfectly silent stirred in the air above us and slightly off to one side where we lay. And so in order to silence Kvoth, to prevent his presence from alerting basically a clicker, probably, if you're familiar with The Last of Us, to his presence, she kisses him and steals his breath away and stops his heart. She is not one to be trifled with and she is pretty freaking terrifying. Yeah. Also something that I noticed here, she seems to use sexuality as a way of indoctrinating Quoth. Like he kind of has the vibe of someone who has had all of his bodily desires met and that that's continuing to string him along a bit. And that's the only way that she knows to communicate with him, it seems like. So then after the creature passes, we get another bit of Felurian doing something mysterious. And we get a lot of, it's really difficult to describe. Like she's making sounds that are silent, but that silence has itself a sound. And it summons forth a bunch of bioluminescent moths which I think is a really cool image. And they're able to create sort of this dim light. And then from the shadows cast by that light, she then gathers up a whole bunch of shadow stuff. I kind of get the impression that she is outlined in Quoth's vision the same way that maybe a motion tracker suit is able to kind of track the, the weird little balls on a person who is performing and will ultimately be turned into like an animated character yeah because there's little moths landing at various joints and everything on her body that cast little bits of illumination here and there and this whole section feels very magical realist there's a lot of surrealism here and you know things that would otherwise be considered metaphor in most contexts are here literal she is able to gather shadow as though it was a physical object. And then she's able to actually weave it together with beams of starlight. And she's doing this pretty much as if it's a mundane task, just as easy and as simple as someone sewing a normal mundane garment. It's like she's knitting with it. Like 
Have you ever seen those hand knit blankets where you're literally doing it with like your whole arm? No, I haven't. Oh, I'm going to have to show you. Fair. Because like your yarn is huge. Like you can put your hands together and make a circle and that's the size of your yarn around. Yeah. And then you just actually like make the blanket by instead of crocheting with a hook, you're just like pulling, pulling it, with it your through. Hand. Yes. Oh, weird. But yeah, like her magic here is something that she does as simple as just any mundane craft. There's no element of sigildry or sympathy or, you know, the alar or anything like that. She's just doing this normally. And Kvothe here has the observation that it's like her sleeping mind is always awake. The thing that strikes me and the thing that I think is drawing us back to the story a bit. Kvothe sees this as something familiar and it takes him a moment to place it. But that familiarity is having seen his father repair items, doing some sewing. His father, not his mother, his father. So yay for just kind of kicking the gender stereotypes away. But it takes him a second to realize that the two actions are pretty similar. That she is sewing starlight into physical shade or shadow. And then he says... Does it sound absurd? I mean, it did to me. But regardless of my ignorant opinion, Florian took a hold of another strand of starlight, brought it into her lap. I brushed my doubt aside. Only a fool disbelieves what he sees with his own eyes. And I think he's also kind of acknowledging that it would be really strange to start drawing line at, well, this can't be possible after literally everything that he has seen on this particular adventure of his. She could stop my heart with a kiss and talk to butterflies. Was I going to start quibbling now? It's a weird hill to die on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and good on Quoth for at least recognizing that. And then as he's realizing just her innate magical ability, he gets jealous of the fact that she can just do magic without really thinking about magic. And the best that I can come up with as a comparative point is watching like my guitar teacher just look at the tab for a song that I am struggling to learn and just doing it. Yeah. Or uh, another way I would put it, actually, I think the, the one that makes most sense to me is it's like a professional swimmer envying a dolphin. Like a swimmer has to train their entire life to know how to swim and they have to work at it and they have to force a body and a mind that doesn't do this as a matter of course and they still can't compete with even a baby dolphin fresh out of the womb that does this as second nature as simple as just walking down the street and that's how Felurian does this stuff like it's just matter of course for her and it's not even something that she's trained at she just does it it's built into the very fiber of her being. In the next chapter, there is an interesting description of Felorian. At times, I felt like I'd found myself a quieter, more attractive version of Elodin. Well, we do know that some people have been known to thirst after particular <laughs> illustrations of Elodin. No shame there. Okay. In my head, Elodin is way older than he is according to the description in the book. 
or for that matter, if you have the pairs deck, or if you have the deck of cards that also shows Elodin. He is so much younger. He's like 25. I think part of it is that when Nick Podell reads him, the voice that he gives for Elodin is a really crotchety voice. That's true. Like it's kind of that nasally crotchety voice. Oh boy. Maybe. That might be part of it. I just, I have a different version in my head. And he might be older than 25, but he is still young. He doesn't look like he is an old person. He doesn't look like a professor. So I guess one of the cool things here is we get a word for the sort of magic that Florian is doing as she makes his shade. And that is grammary, which is the art of making things be, as opposed to glamoury, which is the art of making things seem. Which is what Bast is doing constantly by making it seem like he is a normal human person. Jackie Daytona, human bartender. What's that from? What We Do in the Shadows. That's why I don't know it. And I found it interesting, the link between, of course, we've got gram or grammar. And then also we've got the gram, which is the thing that protects Kvothe, his magic amulet, protects his being. And I think it is that element of fiat looks to it, as in by the force of will, by putting it out into the world, you have made it real. And glamoury is putting out an illusion. The next thing we get is kind of an explanation of how time, days, light works in the Fae. It felt less like time and more like space, like spatial navigation, because there isn't north and south in the Fae, or at least not as we conceive it. There's not a magnetic field that you could use to you know, use a compass in. There's more like daylight and nighttime. Basically, you navigate from day to night and dark to light, summer and winter, and then also forward and backward. But just by walking, you go further into night or further back to day. And if you continue walking into night, eventually it'll dawn on you and you'll get to day. It's almost like it's a planet that's frozen in space, like it's not actually rotating. I'd even say it's a place frozen in time. Yeah, it could be frozen in time, but yeah, it's not moving. It's unchanging. Unless you change. Right. You can change your position, but the thing itself is perpetually slumbering almost. The other thing we get here is that there are a lot of unexplained holes in this story that Kvothe doesn't even have answers for. Well, he claims that he has a good memory, like an ironclad everything that I am remembering is exactly what happened kind of good memory. I'm going to call a little bit of bullshit on that because no one has that. But he says he can't remember everything about the Fae or his time in it. Like he can remember eating and he can remember carnal pleasures, but he doesn't remember things that are like procedural stuff, like how things happened. Like where did the food come from? And it's not even, you know, the things that could be hunted or foraged. There's like bread and butter. These are things that only exist because someone has made them, right? Like bread doesn't just grow on trees. And to his knowledge, the only person 
or fake creature that he has interacted with or that even exists in this part of the Fae is Florian. So is Florian making all of it? She doesn't seem to be the domestic sort. No, but she does seem the type that would be able to kill a bear. Right, or a deer. And there's actually a very chilling bit here speaking of that. So, like, they eat their meat mostly raw here. Or at least Valorian does. And Kvothe is like, yeah, I have no problem imagining her running it down and taking it to the ground. But I could also imagine her coming upon a shy stag and then luring it to her quietly, close enough to touch before killing it, because she could do that and she can switch on a dime. And this is sort of where we really kind of get the sense that Quoth really has fallen prey to two of the classic fairy tale blunders, namely never accept gifts from the Fae and then also, perhaps most importantly, never eat their food. So besides just that, he also talks about how she ate flowers and that because she did, he tried them and he likes violets. I'm wondering if there's something connecting that to a fan theory somewhere. And if any one of our listeners knows of something like that, because it seems ripe with fan theory fodder. It would be really lovely if you guys told us if there was something like that. I don't currently have the spoons to go look it up. I think it really just serves to underline that touch of the uncanny that surrounds Felurian. It is that reminder that even as she looks like a regular human being, or maybe even just a heightened human being, fundamentally, her mind works in different ways. Her very essence is not human. Other things he says are, I do not remember lamps or candles. There's a great deal of fuss when dealing with such things, but I cannot remember a single moment spent trimming a wick or wiping soot from the glass hood of a lamp. So those little help you out with quality of life things also don't seem to exist in this perpetual twilight. Yeah, there doesn't really seem to be any evidence of artifice. Like, we don't understand you know, how it's lit. We don't understand where the food comes from. And I mean, Quoth says, yeah, I can see Felurian going and getting a lot of the stuff, but I don't remember her doing that. I do find the image of Felurian with bear blood running down her face to be disturbing. It's a reminder that she is an apex predator. Mm-hmm. And that she takes all pleasures in that very straightforward and aggressive way. Right. As far as she's concerned, these are all things that she can do. And who's going to stop her? It is her home. But that is where we leave you. Now, normally this would be where we talk about the Fernemos. And as with last week, trick question, there is none. So let's move on to our thing of the week. It's your turn. All right. That's not going to be very difficult for me. Last week, we were going to record after having gone to see a movie, but I was so blown away by the movie and just kind of needing to process that I really couldn't be arsed to do this episode. (laughs) And that movie I'm going to recommend to all of you is Across the Spider-Verse. It was so much fun. It was so good. I have not had an experience of 
sitting forward in my seat, excited about what happens next and next and next and what they've done with the characters and what they've done with the art and what beauty and artistry and craft has been put into not only the visuals, but also the story. This is breaking that idea of the middle of a trilogy is kind of the low point because I loved Into the Spider-Verse. Loved, 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 loved. I liked Across the Spider-Verse more. Yeah, I thought Across the Spider-Verse did a really good job of taking seriously the idea of you know these narrative tropes and then being willing to throw them on their ears. And, you know, it does it with wit and humor and heart. Even the characters who aren't really at the center of all of the multiversal shenanigans are richly drawn and important to the story. They did a great job of including so many diverse Spider-Men Spider and people. <laughs> and people. And pigs. And cats. And dinosaurs. Yes. None of this should be a spoiler if you've seen the trailer. But it was handled with heart. It was handled with humor. And at the end, I didn't want it to stop, even though it had been both a blink of an eye to watch the movie and, like, what is it, two and a half hours long? It felt like that. That seems about right. I just, I wanted it to keep going. Good news. The next part comes out in a year. I mean, at least it's not four or five. So that's good. But it's still a year. And there will be amazing content, projects, things coming out to fill that time. But it's like, but I just, ah. There, there's just, there's so much about that movie. Not the least of it is also the filmmaker's commitment to making sure that Miles does not feel like a diversity hire. Yeah. He, you know, like he is his own character. He gets to be himself. He doesn't just have to have on his shoulders, oh yeah, that's the black Spider-Man. Right. He doesn't automatically just go with the program. He does what seems right to him. And he's not the only one who's like that. And in fact, I think what really comes through is that, you know, we've got a lot of different people who have found their own way to be Spider-Man. And they don't always follow the exact same monolithic requirement. They're not going to have Uncle Ben moments perpetually. They're going to have their own way of life, their own struggles. They're going to have their own viewpoints. And I think... They find their own ways to express them in unique and interesting ways. I don't want to go too much further into that just because that, I think, treads into spoiler territory, which, though we're fine with spoiling Pat Rothfuss books. Because it's, how old is this book? I mean, it's kind of our brand. But yeah, that's like an 11-year-old book. First Mass Market printing, April 2013. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh-huh. This, this I don't mind. Y'all are here for spoilers about this. Y'all are not here for spoilers about a Spider-Man movie that just just came out. However, should you want to talk to us more about this movie, we have a Discord. Hit us up on Discord. We have a lot of fun over there. 
And you can find the link to that in the description of this episode. Awesome. So with that, why don't we move on to our seven words? You have the words from the book today. Yeah, the pickings were a little slim. So I think I'm just going to go with sometimes slow seduction is the only way, which I think is interesting coming from Florian, who is like the epitome of the opposite of Demi. Like Florian, who within an instant of meeting someone is disrobed. Well, not that she ever had clothing, but her partner is now disrobed and they are probably going at it going down a hill. In this case, she is taking her time and making sure to make the shade correctly to put in the care and attention that it needs in order to be a successful project. And it's like she's coaxing it into being. Yeah, that makes sense. So I have less a sentence than sort of almost a Mad Lib. And it is something that we say with somewhat maddening frequency around this house. And that is, Sokka has made it impossible to verb. <laughs> and that verb can be really just about anything. Sokka has made it impossible to play. Sokka has made it impossible to sleep. Sokka has made it impossible to read. Sokka has made it impossible to record. Sokka has made it impossible to... Breathe. Breathe, yep. He sits on your chest. Yes, he does. He sits in front of the television while I am trying to play Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom and has gotten me nearly killed. Sokka has made it impossible for us to watch. Right, like... His go-to move is an hour or more before his food time. Sit in front of the television, specifically in front of the place where the remote is received. And we can't adjust the volume because of that. We can still do other things because he doesn't sit in front of the Xbox, which does control what is on the TV. But it's not like we can see through the 22-pound cat. Yep. So yeah. Sokka has made it impossible to verb is my seven words. I like it. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 102 and 103 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of mythical divergence. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jank for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where we are currently running a 14-day free trial on the tier that will get you all of our bonus content, including the Sandman, which I am Going to have to admit we'll be late this time or maybe non-existent because, well, let's be clear here. We have six patrons and absolutely none of you are on that particular tier. And absolutely no one has listened to all of the bonus episodes we've put out so far. And we just had a whole bunch of stuff just kind of hit us in the face this quarter. So what do you think? I'm going to say this. I'm going to give our community a challenge. Make it worth our while. 
will at least one of you please sign up for just a free trial. Listen to the Sandman episodes and let us know if you like them. Yeah, you can do that on Discord or on Twitter. Discord is actually probably easiest. Oh, Twitter is not a great idea anymore. Yeah. I'm not there very often. It'll probably take two weeks. Discord's much better. Discord's better. Hit us up on Discord and we want to talk to you about it. Like I say, if there's actually an appetite for it, we'll do it. Well, I'm not going to challenge it like that. I'm going to say that it'll just be late. I still want to do them mostly for our own benefit because I like doing them. Oh, good. I just think that we wound up with a bunch of our weekends taken up by other things. It happens. And so I'm going to say maybe we have the sixth book of the Sandman come out September. Not the end of the world. Nope. But if between now and September, absolutely no one listens to them anyway, I mean, incentive might not be there. If there is something else that we could be doing that would be more of an incentive for y'all, let us know that too. I know this is a very long outro. So with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Was that your stomach? Yes, that was my butt specifically. Did you fart? It was a very little itty bitty fart. It was very loud in my ear. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Have you been farting this whole time? No.